Hello, hello and welcome on The Barricade. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and uh, academics. And uh, I am your host, Maria Cernat. And uh, with me, it is my pleasure to introduce to our microphones and cameras, Julie Bindel. No other than Julie Bindel are already announced on Feminists in Romania that I'm going to interview her. So it's a lot of pressure <laughs> since a lot of people have questions for you uh, in radical circles here in Romania, you are uh, well, well known. So Julie, you recently wrote a very interesting uh, uh, article that I translated for the Romanian version of our site about John Davis, Dr. John Davis, who trafficked a lot of children, including from Romania. And the question, the first question that I want to ask is that uh, in 1998, the Hungarian government wanted to expel this individual because he was suspected of running a brothel. He was suspected of bringing very poor Romanian women from from the Roma community to give birth to babies that he would then sold to Western families, wealthy Western families. But what happened in 1998 was the fact that also academics decided to write favorable letters supporting babies, not his ideas, but him as an individual. So I would ask, why do you think that these people decided to support such an individual. Why they supported him was because they were supportive of his ideology, which is the commercialization of women's bodies, the commercialization of pregnancy, of, um, of, ch of children, of everything to do with women as things, as objects. And of course, if you dehumanize women which you have to do if you are selling them either as wombs to rent or eggs to harvest or bodies for sale for sex then you can't see them as human so these academics at Sussex University where John Davies received his doctorate where he was a visiting researcher and spoke with that label all around the world at high profile so-called anti-trafficking conferences he was peddling a kind of trafficking denial he was saying that there's no such thing as trafficking unless of course it's the very um occasional incident where a woman is bundled into the back of a transit van with a gun to her head otherwise it's migration for sex work as he called it and he was supported by his academic colleagues because the department that he received his MA from and that he did his doctoral thesis in, the Department of Migration Studies at Sussex University, that it was full to the brim of PhD candidates, all of whom were trafficking deniers, all of whom would spout the mantra of sex work is work. They were all completely pro-prostitution and for the rights of men to have one-sided sex with women who were desperate enough to be selling access to their bodies. Yes, and this is so difficult to understand because these are smart people. These are people that you would expect to have critical thinking skills and to understand 
that nobody in their right you know, state of mind would accept this type of abuse on a daily basis. But what they did, and I saw that even in Romania was published uh, um, an MA thesis by a researcher in Maastricht University saying that it is us, the radical feminists, that transform um, human trafficking in such a horrible story. Because actually we should also refrain from using the term trafficked women and use instead the term uh, migrant sex worker. And at the same time, you have horrendous and horrible stories related to human trafficking. And I would like to remind the viewers that Romania is number one in Europe in terms of trafficked women and girls for sexual exploitation. What is happening to these people? <laughs> I, I, what is happening? Because, you know, Julie, I was thinking that we should conduct some sort of research. It is a mental disease. It is running for money. What is happening to these people? It's a good question. I think that the academy is corrupt. I think that what's happened to um, academic institutions in the past two decades is disgraceful. They've become businesses run for profit and students see themselves therefore as customers buying a service as opposed to critically engaging with ideas and learning to think critically in other words to assess um, several um, aspects of an argument and decide which one uh, has the most lends the most credibility so that doesn't happen anymore there is a particular line which students are supposed to take or they're seen as somehow, um, I mean, they're laughed at, they're ridiculed. If, for example, they say that they think that prostitution is abuse and they think that trafficking is a very real uh, consequence of normalising the sex trade, then of course you're going to move your merchandise, which is how the women are seen and treated, from one side of the country to another, from Romania to France, from Italy, from from Albania to Italy, of course it makes sense that trafficking is going to become a way of moving that merchandise around. And yet what you've got in the likes of John Davies' former department are those bending over backwards to try to show that sex work is simply work, that there's no harm associated to it. They go even further. They say that if you are punitive at all um, towards the buyers of sexual services, in other words, men, then this somehow makes it more dangerous for those selling sex, in other words, women, because it's overwhelmingly women. So that th this Orwellian twist of logic ends up being fed to students who remember at the same time aren't being taught to think critically and then they go out into the world with their degrees and wield influence in government departments as policy and lawmakers, they run charities, they spout their nonsense in newspapers, you name it, but that's, that's what we're doing. But this is very interesting because you are also 
someone who is critical of the gender ideology and the excesses that the trans ideology led to. Um, and trans activists uh, also attacked you in the most vicious ways. Um, but the question is, again, coming from an academic background, I, um, I read Foucault, I read Derrida, and I confess, I like reading those works. They are very interesting and there is merit to it. And also Gianni, Vato, Gianni Vattimo, Domenico Losurdo, all those thinkers that come from the critical tradition. And yet you don't see this type of militancy, this aggressive misogynistic militancy dressed up as feminism, intersectionality, queer or whatever. You see it in the United States and Great Britain, isn't it? You don't see it in Paris. You don't see it where it originally, those ideas originated from. So how come? <laughs> What's so special about the United States and Great Britain that it took a whole body of knowledge that is the critical theory, to name it as such, and transformed it into this very vile form of militancy? Well, it's interesting the way that things evolve, where intellectual discourses and traditions evolve and become bastardized and become twisted uh, out of its original meaning or, or aim and objective. So if we take something like Marxism, for example, a lot of the old Marxists uh, and entered uh, academic life as queer theorists. So Marxism became somehow queer theory for many of them, not for all, some remained, died in the wool, very traditional Marxists. And I have problems with queer theory and with old style Marxism, but I have much more problems, many more problems with queer theory than I do Marxism, let's just put it that way. But many of these academics then decided to become postmodernists they declared modernism dead. Postmodernism, therefore, was became something utterly ridiculous and incomprehensible, which, in a nutshell, can be explained as there's no meaning, there's no fixed meaning to anything. Everything is a floating signifier, and you cannot ascribe any um, pa power all of a sudden dissolved, which is where Judith Butler developed her ridiculous theory about how gender was just performance, when women were being forced into gender roles, which we call sex stereotypes, and we, we had no choice but to, to perform anything at all. We were, we were required to adhere to sex stereotypes, what she would call gender roles, and we were severely punished if we didn't. So, so that's kind of postmodernism, which morphed into queer theory in our academies um, here in the UK and elsewhere, certainly where I've looked. And of course, if you, if you suggest that power floats and power can be dissolved or can be gained, and it's, it's a free for all rather than it being about institutionalized oppression and disempowerment, then you can 
say anything. You can say that men can become women, for example. You can say that women like me are the oppressors of trans women, in other words, natal men. You turn everything on its head. You say things like sex work is work. It's empowering to have men who are strangers who you are not sexually attracted to penetrating your orifices for one-sided sexual pleasure. You can suggest that it's a great joy for for women who are impoverished and desperate to grow a baby in her womb and then give that baby away to a couple because they want their own biological child. And the mother was literally just like an incubator or a microwave. And all of a sudden, we're not talking about them as exploiters and as abusers and as callous or even sadistic. We're talking about them as though they've almost done that woman a favor, that she is the one that's empowered from this. And in fact, she's anything but empowered. So, so I think that that's why we use the term Orwellian rather a lot when we're kicking back against gender ideology, when we're kicking back against the pro-prostitution lobby, the pro-surrogacy lobby, because it all comes out of the same notion that you can basically ascribe power or powerlessness to who you want. And there's nothing rooted in material reality anymore. Yes, I would agree. And at the same time, I would suggest that these people go back to Foucault, actually, and go back to Derrida and go back to all the French writers that never said something like this. If you go and read their work, it's very far away. And if you read critical discourse analysis, all you want to do is analyze and deconstruct notions that we take for granted. It's a suspicion, you know, of thought that I happen to enjoy reading because it, it trains your critical skills. It's, it, the, the thing is that if you transform it into a dogma, you arrive at the same conclusions that you described here, but it has nothing to do, and this is what I like to suggest, it has almost nothing to do, it's a parody of the, the original writings of these intellectuals and it's taking a whole body of knowledge as I said and transform it into something absolutely ridiculous and coming up with these crazy solutions, individual solutions, you know, not changing society, but taking for granted that you have stereotypes and you need, Judith Butler actually said that, that you need the binary because if you don't have the binary, you can transition, right? If you don't have the extremes that say women and men, then from what to what are you transitioning from? You know, there is no possibility mm. to transition if you don't hang on to gender stereotypes and all the other things. The thing here is that, do you see an intellectual pushback? Are there people in academia trying to form alternative journals, alternative you know, organizations to push back against this? Yes, there are. And that's what's brilliant about the tenacity of feminists and a small number of men, but a significant number who are now recognizing that this whole nonsense is based on misogyny, that it perpetuates misogyny. So there are some great academics who are now developing their own journals. I mean, Joe Phoenix, the criminologist, and, and many others that are in the academy that are bringing out great works um, on 
what gender is, what sex and gender actually is. And, you know, they're in our British universities having an awful time of it, being bullied sideways, quite frankly, um, you know, and being told that they are Nazis and bigots for doing what they're doing. So, you know, I'm full of admiration for, for, for these women. For example, also another professor, um, Alice Sullivan, who's professor of sociology at UCL, where she's head of research. Um, and, you know, she she is, um, she's co-edited with the also wonderful Professor Selena Todd, um, Sex and Gender, a Contemporary Reader, which will be available very soon. I think it's at the beginning of August. And it will be, it's published by Routledge, which is a major academic publisher. And it will be such an important resource for academics and for students who want to see another side of this debate because they have been bullied into accepting gender ideology without any questioning. Otherwise, they are severely punished, ostracized. They often lose their college courses, they lose their jobs. I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about the legal cases that we've been forced to crowdfund for, to fight in the courts and at tribunals. Um, and also statisticians are looking at ways in which statistics on crime are being skewed. For example, if police pick up a man who's been downloading child abuse images, committing sexual assaults, male pattern violence towards women and girls, and they describe that person on the charge sheet as she, as female, as a woman, that's terrible because it skews the crime statistics, but it also skews public opinion and knowledge on this issue because journalists then pick up these cases and describe the defendant or the accused or the arrested person or the convicted person as a woman, as she. So you read in newspapers, a woman arrested for downloading, um, you know, child abuse imagery. And it's a man. So, so there are some great, great academics that are pushing back against this, and they have all my respect. Yes, this is this is very good to hear because they they don't even allow us to discuss of trans women because if you saw in the newspaper or in the statistics trans women, then I would say that will be fair. Okay, let's not call them men. Let's give them that because they say they are dead name. Then you are doing a horrible thing. Okay, but at least you see what 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 is the problem here that they don't want to compromise on anything. And this is so weird. I think this is the for, for the first time in history where you see two oppressed groups, sexual minority, trans people and women that are somehow on the opposite side, isn't it? So it's a very interesting uh, uh, moment in the history of feminism. It is. And of, of course, as we always do, because we live in a constant backlash, we fight back and we regroup and more and more young, vibrant, um, you know, women who have otherwise been thinking feminism isn't for them, that the battles have been won. These women, these newly energized women, this new generation of feminists, all of a sudden appear wanting to know about their history, 
looking at the way that we fought battles and won before, being prepared to fight the same battles again, but with different tools. Because, you know, I'm 60, um, 61 today, when I was um, uh, 18, uh, when I was a very new feminist, we had no internet, we had no international phone uh, calls unless we went to a special you know, post office. We didn't have cheap flights, it was a big deal to fly globalization was was decades away um and and of course we had no internet we had no google we had no email and and now you know there was no social media so young feminists are coming into feminism in very different circumstances to the feminism i was introduced to and but we're adapting our ways they're adapting their ways in doing this they're learning from us from the older generation of feminists from the more experienced generation of feminists but in turn we're learning from the new women the younger women the younger feminists who are doing things in a way now that fits today's world and that's why we need to get together and be um to to, to forge solidarity within and across generations, we really do. And at the moment, all our enemies are desperately trying to divide us. They're pushing at us what divides us as opposed to what unites us. And women need to remember what unites us. Definitely. Um, so is your birthday today because you are said that you are 61 today? So I am, yes, but I'm working. It's business as usual for me today. I'm on terrible deadlines making a podcast series. We've just made the final episode five of this podcast series on um, a police failure in an investigation of the murder of a seven year old girl um, 31 years ago where they went after the wrong man. They blamed the mother. The mother campaigned for 30 years to get the right man in the dock and he was eventually convicted in May of this year. It's quite an incredible story. And if your listeners want to look at it, it's called Three Doors Down and it's by Tortoise Media. Well, definitely happy birthday and thank you so much for spending this half an hour with, with us. So we have little time left. Um, I want to ask you a question that struck me when I read your book, Feminism for Women. You said that men can be allies, and I'm having a little bit of a difficulty with that because if I were to choose between a woman that is so entrenched in the queer movement and a man who shares a lot of ideas with me, I would choose the man. So it's not actually the body but the mind that makes you a feminist in, in my perspective and i'm very curious to know what you think uh, i totally agree but i at the same time um refuse to label men as feminists because it's the only movement on the planet that prioritizes women and girls and if men are given a platform as feminists they will dominate they'll be listened to more keenly they will speak more, they'll get more resources, they get more funding. It's always the case. So what we need to do is have feminists who are of like mind, I agree with you, 
you're not a feminist just because you're a woman. It has to be about the set, set of principles, political beliefs, understanding, a way of seeing the world. Your actions are really important. So feminists are about what, what, what we do as opposed to how we label ourselves. And men can be allies of that struggle in the same way that I won't call myself a core member of you know, an anti-racist organization. I will say that I would lend my support to that anti-racist organization as a white person who um, recognizes it is my imperative to do so. So no, men can't be feminist, but men can absolutely be feminist allies. And I want to know where they are. I know some, I know many. My next podcast series is going to be on men who are doing things wherever they are to reduce, to stop men's violence. But they don't claim the label feminist. That's for us. I understand. And, and the very last, I promise. I struggle a lot with this conflict between class and, and gender. And I'm always, I'm sometimes tempted to be a class reductionist, saying that poverty amplifies gender violence like no other thing. And maybe sometimes, especially since I come from a very, very poor country, I think it's the poorest lately to the latest Eurostat, we even managed to surpass Bulgaria. 34% of, of our population lives in extreme poverty. 40% of our children live in extreme poverty. So it's horrendous. So I sometimes think that, what do you do when somebody comes to you and says, you would have to fight poverty first and then male violence? I think that we could be fighting inequality and oppression at the same time. Why should we listen to the male Marxists, as we did for decades, who say after the class revolution, women can then have their own revolution? No, we have to fight for women's liberation now because many women are in poverty because of male violence. The one thing that unites women all over the world, this unites women and girls everywhere in the world, and I would say it's the one thing only, is the threat and reality of male violence. So until women are free from that straitjacket, from that hell, from that restriction on our freedom of movement, we cannot be liberated in any other way. So we have to prioritize that. And what I would say is to the male Marxists or to those that are prioritizing fighting poverty, which of course, as a formerly working class woman who grew up in relative poverty, I would say this is a very, very important key struggle. But answer me this question, who is going to fight for women's liberation? Who? Because those men and those women fighting poverty now that aren't feminists, they're not going to fight for our liberation ever. It's only feminists that can prioritise the campaign to end male violence. Nobody else is going to do it. Well, yes, I would say so. There are many things and many things that I would like to ask. And I'm very happy that you agree to speak for an Eastern European audience since your article and your work was also about trafficked women 
from Romania. I hope our viewers find interesting what you said. Thank you so much for being here today on this special day when it's your birthday. Happy birthday and thank you again. It's my and pleasure. And to the viewers, if you like what you saw, you can you can support us at patreon.com slash barricade. You can find more content of Julie Binder on the Romanian side because I've been translating this article and I plan to translate others. Thank you so much again. And uh, I hope to see you again on our podcast. I'd love to.